This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Go to texture.com slash weeds for a 14-day free trial. And by The Great Courses Plus, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds for one month of free streaming video lectures. And by MeUndies. Go to MeUndies.com slash weeds for 20% off your first order. Yeah, this is funky. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Um, Matthew Iglesias here with uh, Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, we've got uh, the continuing saga of the secret healthcare legislation to talk about. The search continues. As well as a, a, a hot white paper with, with what I regard as a kind of a, a surprise twist ending. But last night we had a, a, it was a very special, special election night. The most expensive. On a very special edition of the Democrats losing a race. <laughs> it was the, the most expensive House race in history in Georgia 6. It was the highest turnout that we have ever seen for a House special election. It even exceeded the uh, turnout for the last midterm that, that they held there. Uh, really sort of extraordinary level of, of mobilization and engagement. And it turned into a, a huge disappointment for Democrats. Not an objectively terrible result, but after all the hype and the money and the enthusiasm that both sides poured in, John Ossoff did exactly the same as Hillary Clinton. No, he did worse. Slightly worse. He did slightly worse. This, I think, is what actually makes it a quite difficult race to interpret. I mean, putting... Putting first, I, it is not a good result for Democrats. They, they actually need to win races. <laughs> That's an important part of winning Congress back. But, but if you're asking the sort of more subtle question of just what kind of trends are we seeing in the electorate, the, the reason I think it's very hard to interpret this district is that it is an unusual district that had a tremendous difference between the presidential and congressional results in 2016. So in 2016, this district, which was a, a reliably Republican district, is represented by Tom Price, who's now the HHS secretary, and he would win it by 20, 25, 27 points. Hillary Clinton lost it only by 1.5 points. And so on the one hand, Price won by this huge margin. On the other hand, Donald Trump won by this extremely slim margin. And so one of the questions now is, is the right way to understand what is happening in politics, the swing from Tom Price, an incumbent, winning 27% uh, or whatever it was, uh, down to Karen Handel just squeaking out a victory? Or is it Democrats not improving on Hillary Clinton's numbers in 2016. I don't know. I don't find that divide as surprising as you do. Like, to me, it actually kind of makes sense. Like, Tom Price is this guy they've known for for years. They're used to electing him. He is someone, because he's been on the Hill so long, who— Was he chairing a committee? He, he was, like, high up in the ranks of Republicans. Whereas you also have the unknown of a President Trump in, like, a kind of suburban— district that I guess I am less less surprised and it seemed like at the outset of this like less gettable from the Democrats perspective um you know one thing I was obviously interested to watch is how healthcare factored into this race and in a weird way it didn't as much like the candidates didn't really seem to frame it around that it did not seem like voters were out to like rebuke the healthcare efforts that are obviously like swirling around this election. I I think Democrats are looking at this race, hoping they could point to it and say, like, we can ride this thing to victory. And this is, like, literally, like, the moment when it is happening. You have, like, this whole narrative about secret debate. You have the CBO score from the House bill. Like, it it is 
the moment to have an election where you can criticize Republicans on health care in a way that, you know, next November will will likely not be as much of that moment. And it didn't really seem to to turn things very much. So I think if you look at this race in particular, it says a lot of bad things about the sort of Democratic Party leadership and their thinking and their targeting of resources and their over-extrapolation of certain kinds of trends. But then if you look at all the special elections we've had in the aggregate, it paints a quite bleak portrait for Republicans. Do you want to run through those real quick? Yeah. So so we have had five special elections. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted this morning that Republicans had gone 5-0 and in them. That's a, a miscount. Uh, one of them was uh, a special election to replace Javier Becerra in uh, Southern California in a safe Democratic seat. In the special election to replace him, Democrats outperformed by like 20 points what he'd done before. Uh, It didn't matter at all, but it went to show that Republicans in Southern California are like gone. They're like, (laughs) you know, I I mean, they are still out there, but like they were not bothering to vote or like run candidates. California had a Senate race between two Democrats. In the Electoral College, there are limits to how much Democrats can uh, reap further gains there. But in the House, there's still a lot of House Republicans in California, and they have like a problem on their hands. We had a special election in Kansas uh, where the governor of Kansas is a Republican who's become extraordinarily unpopular. Um, His state legislature got enough. Republicans to vote for a tax increase to override his veto. Uh, And so there was a special election in an incredibly red state uh, around Wichita. I think it was Wichita. Um, At any rate, there wasn't a ton of money in this. Uh, The Republican really badly underperformed, I think did like 14 points worse than Mike Pompeo had. Still won because it was a very safe Republican seat. Uh, Then he went to Montana where Hillary did terribly, but where Democrats have the governor, have a senator. So the the state party, you know, has has been okay. Um, The Democratic nominee uh, was not closely tied to that successful state party. Uh, They didn't really have a recruiting success. Bernie Sanders got excited about Rob Quist, uh, but he had a lot of like tax problems in in his background. It it didn't do great, but he overperformed. He he did sort of between where the successful Democratic governor had done and where the bad failure of, of Hillary's campaign had done. Then last night, we had Asaf, who matched Hillary's performance in a district that it's important to be clear about this district. There are a number of districts that have highly educated white populations that are represented by Republican House members that Hillary Clinton actually won the district. Georgia 6 was not like that. Hillary did a lot better than Barack Obama had done, but she still lost. So I, I want to like put a, put a pin in that factoid. What you saw from Ossoff was that he could not generate further improvements over Hillary's improvement. But then down in South Carolina, you had a more, uh, a seat that had been similar to Georgia 6th in its congressional performance, but was demographically different. It had both more African-Americans, but also more uh, working class white population. And nobody put any resources into that. Both sides had kind of written it off as a safe Republican win, but it turned out to be about as close as the Georgia race. So if I'm looking at this in the aggregate, giving a positive spin for Democrats, here's what I'm seeing. In places where Trump was less popular than the House candidate who Republicans had, like Georgia 6th, Republicans are now down to that Trump ceiling, right? 
it's true that Assaf did not make additional gains, but Hillary already made gains there. Then in other places like Montana and South Carolina, where Hillary did worse than Democrats have traditionally done, we are seeing some snapback toward the Democrats, right? So Democrats have recovered some of Hillary's losses, but they don't appear to have lost any of Hillary's gains. And that adds up to a bad situation for Republicans. At the same time, it would require Democrats to actually run like that, right? To not just like double down on, because like, The Clinton campaign had this theory, right? After the campaign, there were a lot of postmortems on, like, how did she lose all these white working class voters? But a week before the election, her campaign knew she was going to lose all these white working class voters. But they thought she was going to gain not, like, some upscale whites, but a ton of upscale whites. And it turned out she gained some, but not a ton. And then the whole Asaf theory was, well, okay, we're going to go from some to a ton. And they didn't have a way to do that. But all these other candidates seem to have shown that you can pocket the sum and go get back some of the working class voters who she lost, which is a totally viable way to win. It's how you would think you would win a campaign, right? Like after you lose, you try to just like do broadly better with all different kinds of voters by having people who are not under FBI investigation and now having your opponent be under (laughs) FBI investigation. I mean, it's like, it's good. But some of the intra-party fights and dynamics have like led everyone to, to pound the table on slightly like extreme demographic theories of the electorate that don't make sense to me. One thing that I find difficult in just interpreting special elections in general is that they are special. Right. Yes. That, that is why we call them that. And it, one thing that is worth noting, special elections do not tend to be predictive of general or midterm election performance. So when you look at how parties do in special elections, like if you look at how Republicans did in the 2009 special elections, they did not do that well. Um, then you look in 2010 and they have an overwhelming performance. My, my point there is not to say that, that you shouldn't take them seriously, but that they do have one incredibly different characteristic, which is that they don't have the incumbent running in them. Right. And incumbents mm-hmm. in American politics, particularly in congressional elections, have very, very big advantages. They have fundraising advantages. They have name recognition advantages in elections that have pretty low information. They often have deep ties to the community they represent. So I think one one reason I find it difficult to interpret the, should we think of John Ossoff as like the Hillary Clinton election or like the Tom Price election, is that, and this goes to the point Sarah made, Tom Price wasn't running. I mean, as Ossoff had run against Tom Price in some kind of weird special election, my assumption is he Tom Price would have destroyed him. Um, now, maybe it would have been 27, maybe it would have been 14, which would have represented a, a swing towards the Democrats, but but nevertheless. And so one of the things just hard when you're building this kind of extrapolation forward is that presumably, unless there's a massive wave of retirements, we are seeing some retirements, but not that many yet. Unless there's a massive wave of 2018 retirements, these are not going to be special elections. These are going to be Democrats running against incumbent Republicans. That has different dynamics. It just tend to be a little bit more favorable to the incumbent and a little bit less purely dependent on the broader political environment. I mean, but I think how much more favorable it is depends in part on what they do. I mean, a point you've made about Donald Trump, right, is that having not been in office, it was hard to tag him with specific things, right? So, like, you can't say that, like, Karen Handel voted to let cable monopolists sell all of your web browsing data because she didn't do that. But all the incumbent House members did, 
right? I think it's interesting to think, right, if, if the United States was like England, right, where if Donald Trump had the option to, like, dissolve the House of Representatives and have all his incumbents run for re-election five weeks from now so that he could obtain a stirring popular mandate and, like, fire Bob Mueller and move forward with his agenda the way he wants to, would Republicans do that? And I think they would not. I mean, I think that they are correct to be, like, feeling good about this Georgia win. It was, like, a big... But it it was kind of like one of these, like, World War I things where, like, for no particularly good reason, everybody started pouring more and more resources into this one spot on the trenches. It became a big deal. The sunk cost became so big. And now Democrats, having spent all this money, are bummed out. But that, like, fundamentally, they're in a pretty weak position, it it seems to me, that they are not recapturing the Trump white working class magic, and they are also not bringing the voters that Trump lost back over to their side, even though Karen Handel, whatever you may say about her, right, she's not like on tape about how she likes to rape people. She's not uh, mocking, you know, she's not doing all the horrible Trump stuff that like push traditional Republican voters out of their column. But they didn't come back and vote for her the the way they had been voting for Tom Price. I I will also say Tom Price's strong re-election in 2016 is in part driven by the fact that Democrats nominated what appears to be a fake person um, (laughs) who did not run a campaign at all. Um, This was an issue. I agree. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that Tom Price would have beaten a real candidate. But <laughs> he'd beaten real candidates by big numbers in the yes, past. Yes, in the past. I I, but you, you do. There were a number of weird cases like this. So I, I think Pete Sessions' district in, in Texas is the most glaring one, where it's in the suburbs of Dallas. Uh, Hillary carried it narrowly, and the Democrats just didn't run anyone. So he obviously got reelected comfortably. But I think this actually speaks to like an important structural issue, which is like the strength of the Democratic bench. Like one of the things you mentioned about Montana is they have a strong party, and they still end up running this guy who, like, wasn't super involved with things. And I think this will, you know, with a special election, you can find, like, one or two dudes to, or hopefully women as well, to run for those spots. But even with Ossoff, this is something that he kept getting pushed back on, that, you know, he's, like, not really, you know, part of there. He's not one of your neighbors. Is something Handa like to talk about. I mean, he literally didn't live in the district. <laughs> right, exactly, which was, like, a fair, like, this was an honest critique of this person. As a candidate, and so you think about that, so this is just, like, for a special election. This is, like, when you could really get, like, the DCCC, like, focused on, okay, we're going to, like, find a good guy, like, like, we can just focus on one. Then you expand it out to the whole map for 2018, and it's, like, where do you find the people who are are going to present good candidates who are not going to be, like, the invisible challenger to Pete Sessions? And I know there is, like, an influx of people interested in running, but I I think this is, and we've talked about this on the show before, like, a structural challenge for Democrats, where a lot of times the places you look are like state legislatures and state government, and those have been very much controlled, you know, much more controlled by Republicans over the past decade or so than Democrats, that they've really invested in state legislatures, in part because it lets them kind of pass laws on issues they're interested in that are regulated at the state level, like abortion, but also gives them a very strong bench of candidates to run. And in a way, like, with something like the Georgia 6, you have an advantage because you can just focus on one race. You can, like, find one guy to, like, run in that one race. But then you look at this larger 
map and, you know, where do you find those people who are going to, like, challenge Pete Sessions or whoever, Daryl Issa, for example, in 2018? I, I think about this in terms of 2010 and 2006. So the narrative that came out of the 2006 Democratic wave was that the DCCC run by Rahm Emanuel at that point had done this amazing job recruiting and had found all these excellent candidates. Then in 2010, the Tea Party was taking over the Republican Party, and Republicans were losing all these primaries to people they considered to be yahoos. And then just they also won the the election hugely. So I think a very interesting question is how much these races nationalize versus how much they don't nationalize. As you say, Georgia appeared to have, due to the messaging and part of both candidates, an extremely local character. So Ossoff was running this campaign against Handel that was about her role where she tried to get the Susan G. Komen Foundation to stop funding Planned Parenthood, right? Which is a very specific Karen Handel problem. <laughs> and she was running against Ossoff as somebody who didn't live in the district, was like some 30-year-old former congressional staffer. You didn't know this guy. And neither of them were really nationalizing it. Handel was not running on a campaign of Donald Trump is excellent and we need to send somebody to Washington who will support him. But also, weirdly, Ossoff wasn't running a campaign of Donald Trump is terrible and you need to send somebody to Washington who will oppose him. He was trying to sort of allow Democratic anger at Trump organically to push Democrats out, but keep him sort of bland and inoffensive enough that he didn't activate a Republican But this backlash. is like the hard part of like running in a district that Trump won, right? Because you're like cognizant of not making those critiques in a place where people voted for this person but like I, four maybe, months ago. But the, uh, just to finish my point that I, yeah, Trump won the district four months ago. Um, Sorry, seven is so, yeah, whatever. Sorry, like, time is really A million blurred. years ago, however long <laughs> we've been living through this. But I, I think this is where you get into a pretty interesting argument from like the Bernie Sanders portion of the left and, and others. Because if you look at a district that in a hyper high information, hyper polarized presidential election, what, what did they split the vote in, Clinton and Trump there? I, I don't know the exact yeah, third but let's parties, say, but, but let, she, let's she say roughly 51 49 or yeah. something. You're looking at a district with a, if just all else is equal, 51-49 partisan breakdown. And if you're going to change that, you either need to excite more people or persuade some new people of something. And it, Matt and I sort of went down a rabbit hole one afternoon of watching John Ossoff ads. And it, it, it was really like they were parodies of like an ad in which the person was trying to say nothing. Right. It was just like these ads about I'm going to go to Washington, cut waste like over and over and over and over again. He was running a campaign based on being inoffensive, based on someone who's like not for Trump, but also not a scary liberal. Now, Democrats, I think you've really revealed some problems in here. So Nancy Pelosi was a figure in this campaign. And as somebody pointed, as Chris Ingram pointed out on Twitter, she's actually less popular nationally than Donald Trump. Like she's a more unpopular figure than Donald Trump. And when House Democrats run, what they are saying, even though Austin said technically like he wouldn't commit to voting for a speaker, but of course he would have. Like what House Democrats are saying is that if you give us a majority, we will put this person you don't like in charge of the House, which is not a super exciting campaign for people. Whether dislike of Pelosi is fair or not, that's a different argument, but, but it does exist. And I do think Democrats need to ask themselves this question if they're going to try to reorient some of the dynamics here, which is it's why people, I think, think Corbyn outperformed, although he's still lost in, in, in Britain. They do, it seems to me, need to give people something to vote for, right? Because if you just let the basic partisan dynamics of the country take over, particularly in the House where Democrats have a geographic disadvantage, like presidentially, there's a theory that the demographics of the country favored 
Democrats. And that actually appears to be a little bit true. It just the geography of it meant that that wasn't enough to win the election, even though they won the vote. But in the House, where districts are gerrymandered, where the ways Democrats live are really geographically inefficient, if you just let partisan dynamics take over, Democrats are going to lose. They have to heavily outperform what's already been going on, which means I think they need more than people not to like Trump. They actually need some people to like them. I think that like the people from the more centrist wing of, of the Democratic Party, they need to like fill a bathtub with ice water and like dunk their heads in it and come up and like reboot a little bit. Like I wrote last night that Asaf should have tried to run on some more substantive issues. That is what I said. I did not say he should run on like nationalizing the coal mines or anything, but like- on But that's some, what you think. On some issues. And I was getting like all this like applause and attaboys from the, the Red Rose uh, Twitter avatars. And then I had people calling me a Bernie bro. And like, I swear, I can remember like way back to like 2013 when like Democrats of all stripes believed that they had- ideas that they thought were good and that they wanted to talk about. And then you had the Hillary Clinton campaign, which had a ton of ideas, but also had developed the notion that they shouldn't talk about those ideas. And then it seems to have like curdled from there into the idea that since you're not going to talk about the ideas, you may as well not have them at all. Um, (laughs) So now the idea of having ideas has become like a socialist talking point. And like they really need to like pull themselves out of that tailspin. Like it doesn't make sense, right? If you want to say, okay, Bernie Sanders's issue message is not going to carry the day in the suburbs north of Atlanta, that's fine. So then, like, ask yourself, what issue message will carry the day in the suburbs north of Atlanta? If the answer is, like, none, like, actually, tax cuts for the rich and this horrible health care bill are great, then, like, what are you doing? Tax cuts for the rich and this horrible health care bill, they both pull terribly. They pull so terribly that they can't possibly be popular, even in these suburbs north of Atlanta. So talk about that. Like, instead, these ads were like, it was as if he was running against Donald Trump. Right. I mean, the Clinton theory of trying to like downplay issues was that Trump was so terrible, was such a maniac that like people of all stripes might just go vote for Hillary Clinton as long as she um, didn't point out to them that this was going to mean like free abortions for everybody. But Karen Handel did not have those characteristics. Now, it was true that you could have made the argument, which he also didn't make, that we need someone who's going to go there and rein in Donald Trump's corruption. But even that is an issue, right? Like, I'm going to go to Congress and I'm going to insist on this and that and emoluments or whatever. Or you could talk about healthcare, you could talk about taxes. uh, But to just get this like national fundraising apparatus based on the idea of anti-Trump energy, but then just run a campaign that's like, well, I'm here to create jobs in Alpharetta. Like that, it's dumb. It, it doesn't make sense. It's so bad that there's actually a good Federalist article about this, which, which <laughs> not, not the him, original papers. No, the, not the Federalist papers, the sort but, of but the anti, anti-Trump website. Yeah. And they analogized him to, uh, to Wendy Davis in 2014, which I thought was actually kind of wise that like Wendy Davis became famous nationally for this, like, stirring defense of late-term abortions, which, good for her. Like, there was a 
a, a large national constituency of people who is like waiting for somebody to say that. Also, obviously, a stirring defense of late-term abortions is not a good issue profile for a statewide one in Texas. But like she wanted to run statewide in Texas, and then she wanted to like be a celebrity nationally who would raise money based on this, but then to run in Texas as like this incredibly milquetoast centrist. And it it didn't make any kind of sense. It's like you have to commit to your philosophy and to what's workable and what's not workable. And if the problem in this Georgia district was that a backlash to Trump was going to drive traditional Republicans into Assad's arms, you would have had to, like, really drive that message. Like, why should your discomfort with Donald Trump make you vote for John Ossoff? And And there was, like, nothing there. They were hoping, I guess, that in the end, Republicans just wouldn't turn out. But they did. I love to read. I love media. I love magazines. I I got my start working in magazines. My mother worked for most of her life in the magazine world. But I also, I kind of hate physical objects, paper, the sort of piles of unread or half-read issues that stack up. And and also, a lot of what's great about sort of timeless journalism is you don't need to read it the day that it comes out, but it's hard to find anything in, in old back issues. That's what makes the Texture app so amazing. It's a bunch of the world's different leading magazine publishers have come together to create this one amazing app that you can use on your phone or on your tablet. I, I use it on my iPad all the time. Uh, and you can browse through basically every major magazine out there. You can look at back issues. You can get special features. Um, there, there's so much great stuff. Get Fast Company, get Rolling Stone, get Sports Illustrated. Check it out if you're interested at all in sort of reading and, and journalism and, and a quality, like relaxing content experience. Uh, they're so confident that you're going to love Texture that they've got a special offer for Weeds listeners. You go to texture.com slash weeds and you get a 14 day free trial. So yeah, do it. So I have one more point on this before we, before we go to healthcare. I have a theory that I do not currently have hard evidence for, but it connects some of the Hillary Clinton and some of the awesome stuff. Because this is a podcast where we're allowed to speculate wildly, I'm going to speculate wildly. Something you hear from, you heard a lot from the Clinton campaign about their messaging, right? Why they did a lot of, you know, Donald Trump is a unstable maniac, not issue ads. And something you heard from the Ossoff campaign, too, right? why they did all this. Karen Andel is a Susan G. Komen executive who wouldn't fund Planned Parenthood and wasting government is bad. They say, look, we do the focus groups. We have all this data. And the data says this is the best way to persuade these voters. I have a vague theory that um, one thing that we're starting to see is – one partisan identity we know is strengthening. It's getting even harder to pull people over from the other side, um, whichever side that might be. But also that Democrats are getting a little bit led astray by their own focus grouping. That put in I'm a nodding room— nodding vigorously. <laughs> put in a room, like, respectable people um, asked if, you know, this sort of argument might change their minds. They're like, yeah, that that is a kind of argument that would change the mind of someone like me. And they're just— not reliable narrators. Maybe they believe it's true, but it isn't. Maybe it actually was never true. But that these sort of weak arguments that pull someone a little bit, it's like, you're only a 58% Republican, so like this will pull you over to a 51% Democrat, that they're just not enough anymore. And that something is happening in these discussions where you know, the folks with all the data are looking at what the data is telling them, and, and they're saying, okay, go with this 
strategy that is meant to build the widest possible base by being pretty inoffensive, but it's also a pretty gentle form of persuasion, right? It's a, hey, maybe that person isn't great. You're still a Republican, but maybe this one time you want to vote for a Democrat. And that appears to not be something people are doing. And that you actually need to like push people over a much larger hump or you need to excite more of your own side or something. But I'm watching these campaigns that are based on ads that I am certain, right? Like I am certain these folks are listening to this sort of Monday morning quarterbacking and saying, fuck you. Like we did a million focus groups, had a million polls. You're just pulling stuff out of thin air. And that is true. Like that, that, is, that is how all this works. We were pulling things out of thin air. But I've now heard enough of this thing about focus group ads not working that I am starting to wonder if there isn't a actual shift in what that data is really telling you given how difficult it is to dislodge people's partisan identities now. So the strategies built on dislodging a partisan identity just this one time based on a non-ideological message, they might work in a room where people are sort of trying to act like a normal human being who's not just like a rabid partisan all the time, but they don't work in the privacy of the voting booth. When I think one thing about focus groups in particular is a research method. It's like you're necessarily doing them with a group of, group of people. And, you know, that's obviously more efficient mm-hmm. if you're like a researcher. A you point. want to like put a bunch of people in the room. And like, you know, I've seen this. I've conducted focus groups on Obamacare. And you kind of like often see this ripple effect through the room where one person says like, I agree with that. And then other people are like, yeah, I agree with that. And like, it feels, um, you know, I've had a few people email me who study research methods who have argued like, we shouldn't be using focus groups at Vox, that, like, there are some flaws with the way that those work. And, you know, I, I do not know enough about this to, like, make a judgment either way, but I, I think it is something interesting to keep in mind about the particular research method that is often used and the fact that, you know, like you're saying, it's not in private. It's necessarily with a researcher and it's with these other people. And, you know, you can certainly see these ideas kind of, like, ripple through this group of eight people who kind of, want to fit in like and like what does it matter to them right like it's more comfortable to like fit in with this group of people and go home and be like that was all garbage and I'm just gonna do whatever I want than like be that one guy in the focus group who's gonna like say like no actually like I don't care about this message at all totally and you know what keeps group dynamics from taking over secrecy doing everything in secret (laughs) (laughs) secret focus groups no secret um, focus groups yeah so today is Wednesday. Tomorrow is Thursday when the Republicans will supposedly release their Senate health care. So obviously they told interested journalists like when the release is coming, oh. there's a big rollout. They're going to have like some briefings laying out the details. Yeah, so for right you. now, after sending many emails, I know that the bill will be posted online on Thursday. <laughs> and that is the information I have. Um, Exclusive muscreditbox.com. Yes, exactly. Whoa, if true. Um, so it's just been a crazy few weeks. So the the bill will be posted on Thursday on the internet. Um, A CBO score is expected on Monday and a vote is expected next Thursday. So we're talking one week, seven days for Republicans to digest this bill, decide if they support it and possibly vote on it, which is just like an insane time frame. You know, like some of the secrecy stuff, I, I do understand like you want to hammer out these details. You want to be able to, like, figure out your legislation without getting, like, constant, like, barrage of, you know, negative feedback or whatever. Like, you want to, like, hammer out your ideas. But the idea that there would just be literally one week for any interested party to 
to look at the bill, to suggest feedback, to make changes, is just, it's really, really crazy um, for for so many reasons. Um, One is that drafting legislation is really hard. It is complex. One of the reasons the Affordable Care Act is hard to read is not just because it's long, but because you have to reference other laws and like you have to like kind of like look at this section that goes back to this other law. And it is just a tough thing to understand what the bill is actually doing. And so you'll have a lot of people combing over this. And it often takes, you know, more than a week to notice like something weird going on in the bill. Like a perfect example of this was um, with the Republican passed American Health Care Act. It took a long time of people cross-referencing sections to figure out, oh, hey, this bill would let employers bring back lifetime limits, Um, you know, because some folks at Brookings were kind of like looking at how one section relates to another and thinking this, these changes through, that these things that are not necessarily obvious become obvious as you spend time with legislation. And it sets you up for all these problems. I mean, people who worked on Obamacare are saying this now, that there's some sloppy drafting because they couldn't go back and revise their bill that is leading to these lawsuits and to these problems with the Affordable Care Act that, you know, with more careful attention to detail, they wouldn't have. So it really, it sets this bill up so poorly. And it just really speaks to this idea that the focus is not policy. The focus is like passing something. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what's actually on that piece of paper. It's also telling that there's a bunch of Democratic senators out there, right? Claire McCaskill, um, Joe Donnelly, Joe Manchin, um, Heidi Heitkamp, who are in seats that Donald Trump won comfortably. If Republicans thought they had an idea that when the public heard about it, people would be excited about it, they would be doing this totally differently. Right. They would be saying, we're going to unveil the legislation and they would tell you when. So the cameras are all set up. They would have their top spokesman there at the event. They would have people to do briefings so that the write ups would be because if you make it easy for journalists to cover the bill, they're more likely to cover it prominently. And they would, you know, not take forever with it because they would want to get it done, but they would want to leave it hanging out there long enough so that they could squeeze Claire McCaskill between a liberal base that wants her to oppose Donald Trump and the Trump-loving people of Missouri who want her to support him. They're not acting like that, right? They're not acting like there is any margin to be gained by pressuring even the reddest state Senate Democrats with this bill. They know that it's just the opposite, right? That it's like there is nothing that Joe Manchin would rather do than talk about this health care legislation because he doesn't want to talk about Donald Trump is personally popular in his district. A lot of Trumpian themes are popular there, but this healthcare bill is not popular there. It's not popular anywhere. And they have no intention of trying to persuade people that it's good or of trying to change its provisions to make it less toxic. They just want to get it done. And what I think the not totally unreasonable assumption that, you know, the world of politics will move on to other things. They managed to run a special election that was dominated by a Kathy Griffin joke and possible questions about John Ossoff's production of a documentary for Al Jazeera. So like a year-old healthcare bill that's devastating to the lives of tens of millions of poor people, like, you know, they can maybe get behind. But that's what's telling here, right? This is not legislation that Republicans are proud of. It's legislation that they profoundly want to pass because it cuts taxes a lot, I think. Uh, I don't even think most of, I mean, this is what I think is so interesting about these dynamics. Most of them don't want to pass it. 
I mean, you you can listen to them talk about this bill. We we did this great piece where Jeff Stein and Tara Golshin and Dylan Scott talked to eight Republican senators. And they're like, why why do you support this bill? And it was like absolute word salad. Like, what will this bill do? What problems will it solve? And like a lot of them were, John McCain said, it's going to try to get 51 votes. It's like, that 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 is a problem, I guess. A lot of Republicans, they don't want to pass this bill. I've, I've heard this talking to folks on the Hill, but they do feel they need to pass a bill. And this is the bill they're being given. And they have no control over the process and not being given any control over the process. And nor, by the way, are they taking control of the process. A, an argument Sarah made, and it is correct, all of these crocodile tears about how this is a terrible process. The, the funniest of these, Senator Mike Lee is a member of the gang of 13, the working group of 13 sort of Republican senators who were in theory crafting the bill behind closed doors. And he came out yesterday or the day before and said, you know, we thought in this secret working group that we were going to be writing this bill. But it turns out that Mitch McConnell and just a couple other people writing this bill in a super secret working group, and we don't even know what's in it. So if you're upset about this process, I share your anger. As a member of the secret working group, if you like, I'm not even a member of the super secret working group, so I feel your pain. Like, this is bad. Um, which, you know, fair enough, right? If, if you asked me to join the secret working group for healthcare, I would have done it too. But there, there are these crocodile tears about how the bill is being drafted by McCain, by Corker, by all of them. And three of them could just say, you know what? If you don't do a process we can get behind, we're not voting for this bill. And that would be that. Like, they would have to redo the process tomorrow. None of them are saying that. John McCain is walking around making very funny jokes. Somebody said to him, like, oh, is the process a problem? And he said, no, I always prefer to not have seen the bill before I vote for it. And, like, everybody's like, ha, ha, ha. John McCain's very honest on this stuff. He could do something about it, um, but they're not. But so I don't think they want to pass this bill. I think they think they have to pass it um, because they think they need to do this thing called repeal and replace Obamacare. They promise it for years and years and years. They need to do something that satisfies that. Republicans made a promise here that had a lot of different parts. And I think they took a part of it seriously and didn't realize that other people took the part they did not mean seriously. So Republicans went around the country saying Obamacare is terrible. It is covering too few people. Its deductibles are too high. Its co-pays are too high. Its premiums for good insurance are too high. And we're going to repeal and replace it and put in its place something terrific. And Republicans seem to think that everybody sort of knew that, like, this was all bullshit code and what they were really going to do is just repeal it and, like, cut Medicaid to the bone and give the money to rich people. And they need to do you know, make good on that promise. But, you know, Sarah, you're reporting a show on this. A lot of polls show this constantly. Their voters listened and they heard, you're going to cover everybody. My deductibles are going to be lower. I'm going to get better health insurance I can actually use. And this bill they're coming up with is a betrayal of those promises. They're not keeping the promise. They're betraying the promise. And and Matt is right about the general idea that you can do something very unpopular and move on from it. In 2013, Ted Cruz got them to shut down the government over Obamacare. The Republican Party went to its lowest number in polling ever. And then in 2014, they won the midterm election. But you pass this bill and there does come a day when millions of people lose health insurance. Like it really happens. And People are going to look at them. They're not going to have totally forgotten. Now, I mean, tomorrow's problem is tomorrow's problem. And I'm not sure I'm watching a Republican Party with a lot of long-term strategic planning here. But it just isn't the case you can pass this and move on. You pass this. And I mean, Democrats found this out too. And like every day after that, you have to deal with it. You have to deal with the day you've got to rebuild the exchanges. You have to deal with every time – 
insurers come out and put out their premiums. You have to deal with when there's reporting on how many people bought insurance or lost insurance. You have to deal with the idea of like the Arizona market is destabilizing and nobody wants to offer there anymore. They have no plan for this. Right. And they do not believe that what they have is defensible. And that's what I genuinely don't understand. Like you you made the point correctly. They're not crafting legislation that is going to work well because the legislation is not technically well-crafted. But also, crafting legislation that you know is horrifically unpopular, that does things people don't like, how are you going to defend that afterwards, right? You also need something politically defensible. Democrats believed Obamacare was polling low, but was politically defensible. And I think they're more or less right. It's become popular as it's become under attack. This is like, move the money back to rich people and de-insure all these poor people? I don't think that's politically defensible in the long run. If you like listening to podcasts like this one, uh, you must love learning. And if you love learning, a great way to do it is with The Great Courses Plus. I love these things. They've got really great, engaging experts doing video lectures on, on all kinds of topics. You can learn about Russia. You can learn about the history of economics. You can learn about psychology. Uh, you could learn a new hobby like like cooking. They've even got a thing about playing guitar. I, I cannot play guitar, uh, but but I enjoy their fun ones as well as their sort of more scholarly ones. Recently, you know, we're talking about their new series, Thinking About Cybersecurity from cybercrime to cyber warfare. Cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig talks about, he talks about digital espionage, computer viruses, and most importantly, he talks about the tools that you can personally use to protect yourself from cybercrime. So you don't need to be naive out there on the internet. You can understand what sorts of, of tools and habits of mind you need to protect yourself against, I think, what we all know is a, a kind of growing threat. Quick Courses Plus offers unlimited access to over 8,000 video lectures on all kinds of topics. You can stream them from any device, or you can download the videos, uh, you know, watch them on a plane or, or whenever else you're offline. Uh, our listeners can get the first full month for free. You just sign up through our special URL to start watching, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Get your free month. You're going to love it. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. The way they are doing this so quickly, where the bill will be out for one week before the vote, it makes it really hard for folks who like want to have that argument to actually have it. Um, you know, I spent yesterday trailing around this family with this six-year-old boy named Timmy, who I've written about before, who um, have really benefited from the law's ban on lifetime limits. He um, spent the first six months of his life in the NICU, racked up $2 million in bills, still needs a lot of medical care. And one of the things I didn't fully realized until I watched them go through their meetings is they had one meeting with the Republican office, Senator Portman's office. And one of the things his staffer was able to do was just offer like vague, like statements of support. Like we're with you guys. We care about kids. And it was really hard to push back on that. Cause like, they can't say, no, your bill does X because we don't know what the bill does. Like they know they, they can look at the house bill and say like, well, the house bill will do X. And then the Senate staffer can say, well, we're looking at that. Like we're still working on it that it really puts advocacy groups in this very difficult, almost like neutered place where, where they can't say, you know, no, this is going to hurt this kid we have with us because they don't have the this yet. They just have this like vague general sense that this will really affect their family, but like no way to kind of like make the case like you've you've committed to something. And I think that really, it helps explain McConnell's strategy. It explains why he is doing this so secretly, because it is hard to have those arguments around a bill that doesn't exist yet. And there will just be one week to have those arguments. There won't be as much time for senators to get blowback on this bill as there was on the House bill. But it's tough to make a case against like a bill that will affect millions of people, but also does not currently exist in a public but form. This is, I think, 
going back to Asaf, I mean, this is like like central, like structural failure of Democrats' messaging over a period of years, which is that in the United States Congress, the most important issue in American politics is the level of taxes paid by rich people. In particular, every single Republican member thinks that rich people pay much too much taxes, much too much taxes, right? And that there is no— How many too much taxes? I don't know exactly. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I mean, if you look, like, they want to— strip health care from millions of children to deliver a large tax cut to wealthy households, then follow that up by creating a 20% consumption tax on everything everybody buys in order to finance a second large tax cut for wealthy households. They think that Apple is dramatically overtaxed, right? That the number one priority in business tax reform should be to deliver a huge tax cut to Apple and its shareholders. And it structures everything. If you want to know, like, why don't we make college tuition cheaper? It's because they want to cut taxes on the rich. Why don't we lower deductibles? It's because they want to cut taxes on the rich. Why did the country almost declare bankruptcy in 2013? It's because they want to cut taxes on the rich, right? It's the paralyzing motion. You can have lots of really fun, interesting discussions with Republican Hill staffers about different kinds of issues. But when it comes down to maybe uh, multimillionaires like, could have less money and then we could have uh, a bridge. It's like, no. <laughs> Right. You you can't do that. But people do not perceive that. Right. Politics as it plays out. Oh, not even less money in the health care bill and the tax bill. Just the same amount right, of money the they have. Amount, now. Right, right, right. Right. But I mean, in, in the politics as it is perceived in competitive state races, that is not the case. Right. Like the Montana special election, uh, the Georgia special election, none of these elections were primarily fought out on the question of are rich people undertaxed, right? Republicans have a lot of their other issues and like Democrats are not willing to do like the combination of like clear messaging about this and willingness to be ideologically flexible according to what suits the different districts to like make that be what races are about, I don't want to say that like no other issues or priorities are are important or or worthy of of any kind of attention, but it is such a dominant roadblock in like actual legislation. And I think the polling supports the sense that the Republican stance on this is not a popular one, but people do not have the sense in their guts that there is this blockage in Congress and that what the blockage is, is the tax rates on wealthy people. And that if you undid that, like all kinds of different things are are possible. And and you saw like Donald Trump in his campaign, he, I think, tapped into people's sense that like there's a lot of things we should be doing that we're not doing, that it's like vaguely inexplicable, that we can't seem to make progress on any of these issues, that like we need to do something different to like untap America's potential. But the thing that we need to do to untap America's potential is to increase taxes on the people who have have all the money. And like, if you can't make campaigns be about that, then you're stuck in the patient advocacy groups who are like, oh, can't you help poor Timmy? And Rob Portman's like, sure, I'll help poor Timmy. But like, you can't help Timmy 
and deliver a $600 billion tax cut. You're helping the people who are getting the tax cuts, not, I mean, maybe Timmy is the heir to a multi-billion dollar fortune. <laughs> I don't believe that's addition. the case. I mean, no. some people, there are rich people who also have unfortunate medical conditions, and, and it's it's a thing, but, like, that's, that's what's going on here. And, like, the bill, quote-unquote, is secret, but, like, the bill is not secret. Like, the point of the bill is to finance a giant tax so cut. I agree with all that. I, one, of, one of, I think, the, the truths about American policymaking right now is that Republicans tend to be making tax policy when people think they're making health policy. They tend to be making tax policy when people think they're making infrastructure policy. They tend to be making tax cut policy when people think they're doing almost anything. Uh, they dress it up in different ways, but usually what's happening is they are trying to cut spending on something in order to deliver larger tax cuts, right? And the cutting spending on the thing almost never has like a very clear goal behind it in terms of how the thing itself works, right? Like Republicans do not really have an argument for how slashing Medicaid like this will make Medicaid work better, but they do have an argument for why they want the the taxes to be cut. So I, I agree with that, but I do want to go back to what Sarah was saying about the secrecy. I was talking to a Republican who's who's influential on healthcare stuff, and he was worried about the secrecy. And so I think there's a, a view that's taken hold among um, folks, which I, I think is right that like what McConnell is doing is cynical and even sinister, but it's smart, right? It's good that the bill isn't out there because nobody can attack it. It's good that the bill is secret because you know then the press can't write about its worst provisions. It's good there's only going to be like. A, 12 hours between when they see it and when they have to vote for it. And maybe it is, right? I, I do not I do not think I'm a better legislative tactician than Mitch McConnell. And so I, you know, I take his word for it. But th- this guy was saying, you know, the problem when you surprise people with the bill is that they focus on what's wrong with it and a lot will be wrong with it. And they don't have time to get comfortable with it. They don't have time to have arguments made to them on it. They're just uncomfortable. And I think you saw this in the original American Health Care Act fight. The bill failed the first time. And, and by the way, something I would not be surprised to see is this bill fails time one, mm-hmm. and then like that comes back in a different form a month or two months later. And, you know, part of what McConnell's doing is just speeding up a multi-pronged process. But nevertheless, like, a bill is going to come out, going to be a CBO score. Sarah Cliff is going to read it. She's going to notice that it hurts everybody but members of Congress or something. (laughs) All the Republicans are going to freak out and change it. And this is going to happen a bunch of times simultaneously. Meanwhile, the bill, they're working with CBO, so I'm sure they're going to get a better score than what the American Health Care Act had. But they're not going to have a great score. It's still going to de-insure millions and millions of people. It's still going to have a lot of stuff wrong with it. And everybody's going to be absorbing that instantly all at the same time. And there's going to be this fear of a press that is, like, hungry for information about this. And so you could imagine it just, like, that strategy failing. And then maybe they delay it. You know, maybe it it comes back in another form. All kinds of things can happen. What McConnell wants to happen here may not even be what he thinks will happen. It may not even be what he really wants to happen. But one reason people have not done secret bills like this is not just literally that nobody has thought about it or that nobody's been cynical enough for it, but that it has been a theory about legislating and particularly legislating on hard things that while the public process and the open process is difficult, it is a necessary part of getting members of Congress comfortable with what you're doing, of educating them, of making them understand why the trade-offs you're making had to be made, of making them realize, like, actually, I can defend this in front of my district because now I know how it works, and if somebody says X, then I can say Y. And by, like, short-circuiting that entire process, you're already seeing some some real—Rand 
Paul, Mike Lee, and Ted Cruz are starting to talk like they're going to bolt. Doesn't mean they will, but they're starting to say very negative things about the bill and about the way, you know, the moderates are not really repealing Obamacare and blah, 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 blah. The moderates are beginning to sound a little bit shaky too. Again, the whole thing might just pass like in four days or whatever it is. But you could also imagine looking back at this and being like, oh, that that didn't actually make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting task. So my... I'll throw this out in the podcast because we're into wild speculation here. I don't think it'll pass on Thursday. And I might be 100% wrong. We'll see in a week if this is right. But I kind of expect something similar to the House where, like, they put it out there. They can't quite get the votes together. Go back to the drawing board and, like, right before August recess for, for something like that, for example, they're able to pass it. One of the things that I have the most trouble gaming out, like thinking that through, is um, how much it mattered that the House was able to say, well, we're going to pass this, but like the Senate will fix the problems with this bill. Because I think one of the things we learned with the House vote is how strong the incentive to repeal is, that the incentive to repeal is strong enough to pass a bill that is very unpopular that would cause millions of people to lose health insurance. And I think I underestimated that. I, I underestimated how strong that drive would be, particularly with more moderate Republicans. I think that is there, but you don't have the counterbalance of, oh, and like this other person will fix it. Because I don't think the expectation is like the White House will be like, wait, 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 like we need to review this and make this better policy. Like the Senate is really the final, you know, rubber stamp for this. Um, it will have to go to like a conference committee, but they can't really put it off on another body. And it, it seems very hard for me right now to game out like how how much that safety blanket mattered to the House in passing their bill. But I'm not sure how much it matters that it mattered in the House, because the difference between the House and the Senate is that there's a bunch of really vulnerable House Republicans who they needed to get on board for this. Kevin McCarthy got like all the House Republicans from California to vote yes on this, including a lot of them who are in really vulnerable districts. There are no acutely vulnerable Senate Republicans at the moment. Uh, you have Dean Heller, Cory Gardner, and Susan Collins are like marginally vulnerable, but but they're all way safer than Daryl Issa and, and some of the, the House people who, who voted for it. So that kind of like pure political concern, particularly because Maine is trending redder, is just less of an issue in, in the Senate than I think it was in the House, particularly if the Senate bill has already made someone more moderate. To, to the extent that they've been having moderate-style problems in the Senate, it has seemed to be more about the actual substance of it, like Shelley Moore Capito and Lisa Murkowski trying to make the bill more favorable to their to their states. And they do that work behind closed doors. But a place where the political tribalism that we've talked a lot about comes up is that if you describe this proposal to a conservative working class person in West Virginia, it probably sounds bad to them in a lot of ways. And if you suggest modifications to make it more moderate, that probably sounds like a good idea to them in a lot of ways. At the same time, a big blaring news story about how Trump care repeal just failed in the Senate and how Democrats are celebrating, and Donald Trump is frustrated, and there's like Nancy Pelosi saying, we killed this thing, and if it does manage to get through, we'll kill it in the House. That's like bad. Your team just took an L there, right? So it, it balances the politics, I think, for the senators from these lower-income Medicaid expansion states, where like on the one hand, they want to try to take care of their constituents a little bit within the context of this giant tax cut bill. But their constituents 
are rabid Republicans who want to see Republicans racking up wins. And they don't want to be like the cause of, of loss and angst. And Aitan Hirsch is a, a political scientist at Yale, and he has this idea of political amateurism, which is like people rooting for political outcomes, more like they root for sports teams. And like, you see how many like left-wing Americans were elated that Jeremy Corbyn beat expectations in a UK election, right? And that's like, it's a very sports-ish thing. It's not about themselves and, and their lives. And more and more people have that kind of relationship to politics. And if you are part of Donald Trump fandom, like you're going to be sad if this bill fails its test vote in the Senate. And you're going to want to, like, get it done. And, like, that's the best thing, I think, this operation. Between, like, the donors want the tax cuts and, like, the base wants the win, that creates a lot of momentum. Uh, Whereas in the House, the momentum really could have been checked by the 20-something people in districts Hillary won who could have looked around and said, like, you know what, my base— actually doesn't want the win for Trump here. But in the Senate, I just I just don't know that that'll that that'll stop them. There's a reason I've been telling you about MeUndies for months now. It's honestly the softest, most comfortable underwear that you're ever going to wear. Once you try them, you're going to say to yourself, like, I can't believe I care this much about underwear, but it is really way nicer to be in these pairs. It's because every pair of MeUndies is sustainably sourced, and it's made from the fabric. It is called micromodal. It is three times softer than cotton. It, It honestly is. You probably think that the underwear you're buying right now in sort of random three packs is fine, uh, when you try MeUndies, you're going to see that it, it's not fine. They've got lots of interesting colors and patterns. There's no reason it needs to be visually boring. And there's no reason it, it can't be softer. Uh, so this month, they've got a rainbow confetti print called Celebrate. Go to MeUndies today. You can go get the Celebrate pattern before they're all gone. If you go to MeUndies.com weeds, you're going to save 20% off your first pair. Uh, you've got to feel for yourself why MeUndies has sold over 5 million pairs to date. And if you buy it and you don't love it, uh, it's free. You can send it back. You'll get a full refund. They're really confident that you're going to want to keep it. So get 20% off your first pair plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash weeds right now. That's MeUndies.com slash weeds. MeUndies.com slash weeds. Do you guys think this bill would have been better if Republicans were eating healthier lunches? Yes, much better. Uh, okay, no, a quick a quick white paper discussion. This was a this was a fun one. The paper comes to us from uh, Michael Anderson, Elizabeth Ramirez Ritchie, and Justin Gallagher, and they look at California and some school districts in California contract out their school lunches to private vendors. There's a lot of instability among the vendors; they switch around, and so they looked at the different vendors. They did a nutritional analysis on how healthy is the food that comes in. So by looking at churn and then by looking at test scores, uh, because thanks to, you know, education reform, we have lots of tests now. And they show that when you serve healthier meals to kids, uh, their test scores go up by about 0.3 or 0.4 standard deviations, uh, which is a lot. And they show that the effect is concentrated among kids who qualify for discount school lunches, which, again, suggests it has to do with eating the food, perhaps, which is good. And I just, like, put this along with the lead stuff that we talked about, uh, you know, the other week in terms of, like, things that we can do to help kids that pretty clearly are scalable. I mean, it would take money to scale it, but it's not like... It's not like one of these like heroic teacher stories where it's like five heroic teachers can save your school, but where do you find five million? Like, 
we have plenty of like broccoli in America. We're not we're not suffering a, a shortage of it. Fascinating secondary finding was that the purpose of contracting with healthy school lunch vendors, the stated purpose, uh, was to reduce childhood obesity, and it does not accomplish that. Wait, so so is the because you've read this paper a little more closely than I have. The argument is some the the or the research mechanism is some vendors are providing less healthy yeah. lunches. Wait, so why aren't they just contracting with the healthy lunch people? Like well, why why aren't they eat like literally eating their lunch? Like why why do you have the unhealthy? Vendors in the mix. Well, I see you two are like super healthy vegetarians, but the other night I ate some <laughs> pasta with bolognese sauce and it, it was not very healthy. It was a lot of meat and fat and carbs and it was fucking delicious. <laughs> so I think I think that may be one reason because you might want the kids to be happy and like give them some pizza and chicken fingers and stuff like that. But it turns out they will do better on school tests so if you make them not, eat vegetables. I'm not at all surprised by the obesity finding here. Um, I know I'm, you're never yeah. surprised by obesity findings. How many obesity is, findings? Is that true? Yeah. Have you noticed over the years of blaseness that I have no obesity wh- wh- findings? Whenever something doesn't work, you're always like, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so I, one reason none of these findings surprise me is that uh, there's a, a paper from back in the day. I believe David Cutler was involved in it, but by memory, I'm not going to remember the other authors. But I thought it did an extremely convincing job showing that the rise in obesity, it does not appear to be related to consumption of calories at mealtimes. It is related to consumption of calories between mealtimes. And they basically make this argument that's fairly, they, they show this is actually true, that the number of calories consumed at meals has not changed that much, but the number of calories consumed between meals has changed dramatically. But but they make this argument that's pretty interesting and, and technological in nature, which is that it has long been possible when you're having a meal at home, like people for very, like for human history, have put a lot of work into those meals. And those meals were often quite bad for you, right? You make a big casserole and everybody eats a bunch of casserole. It's delicious and, and it's all good. But there was not until pretty recently the technology to have shelf-stable, continuously available snack food everywhere. And once, it used to be the best you could do was an apple. Right. But now, like, <laughs> like chips, like so bags of <laughs> chips are actually a reasonably recent innovation. Yeah. So a lot of our calories are coming in between meals. So kids eating a healthy lunch, if what you're trying to deal with is obesity, which is not exclusively but largely a calorie issue – it doesn't change that there's all this food around all of the time. If anything, eating a healthy lunch makes you more inclined to get Doritos <laughs> later, right? right? Like we have M&Ms here at Vox, and when I get a salad, <laughs> right, yes, then no, you but... definitely have the M&Ms later that day. But so I, do, I also just think there's a weird, particularly in foodie circles, has been a weird merging of the idea of healthy with the idea of um, diets. Like you can eat healthy food and there's just a lot of calories in it. Um, it's not obvious to me why these things would be connected, but but people sort of have a a genuine feeling of virtue around meals that is not always, I think, super well-founded in terms of specific things you might be trying to accomplish in those meals. Well, I think one other thing with the obesity, as I will join Ezra in his lack of surprise, <laughs> is that one of the things that's really hard about changing obesity rates is just the time frame you're working on, where this is like a tough thing to deal with, where often you're not seeing outcomes over, I don't remember how long the study was, but I'm sure it's like a few years. Yeah, they just like like over a few years. Yeah, and it's often very hard to deliver like big health outcomes. You see this with so much healthcare research. Like you look at the Oregon Medicaid study, for example, which tried to look at health outcomes among people who got Medicaid and didn't find them. You know, my thought, if you follow those people for like 10 years or 20 years, maybe maybe you do show some kind of outcome, but you follow these kids for 10 years, 20 years, um, obviously there's a lot, like Ezra says, going on in their food environment, but maybe you see 
some kind of change there. Um, you know, I think the food environment, I would push back where I do think like the food environment matters at some level. My guess is like these are being made in a larger suite of changes that are happening in schools where there's a lot of like banning of vending machines, like no high calorie drinks. From my personal experience working here at Vox, like if you put people in an environment where the food is like high calorie M&Ms and these like delicious dried mangoes we have that are pure sugar, like they generally will gravitate towards those things. Um, yeah, it's bad. You're laughing it's about true. the mangoes? No, we're just, no, we're going to get into we're like just gonna box, get into snack box snacks. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to refocus. I actually, I had to last the- night, I had to throw away a bag of wasabi piece of masks. I just like, the only way I was going to stop eating them was if they were like in the right. garbage. I just, I hope we don't have yeah. a, a nature bag. But this yeah. is like the important point about like, this is like, you have the healthy lunches in the school, but then you have like the corner store that has like whatever yes. junk that you want. And it really, you know, I've done some reporting on food deserts. And it turns out, like, putting apples on the shelf next to chips, like, doesn't really change much because people just buy the chips. Have people ever eaten an apple? <laughs> right, exactly. Not great. Um, Ch- and this is, good. like, one of the struggles of, like, doing this as an obesity intervention. Right. But this is why I do want to emphasize the positive <laughs> finding of this paper, because I agree with Ezra. People's intuition that, like, oh, it would be better to eat healthy meals at mealtime is a little hazy. And it turns out, in this case, to not be validated by obesity research. But it also seems to turn out to be true that it would be better to serve kids healthy meals at mealtime. Uh, they end up doing better in school. Uh, we education is like it's one of the most vexing policy issues because there's a ton of evidence that it's like super important to do education well and also a ton of evidence that like all these education policy interventions don't really work uh, or, or don't work at scale and so when you find things that do work at scale it's like it's important to see them it would cost like some money but not like an infinite sum of money for a state to systematically upgrade the nutritiousness of the school meals that they provide uh, schools also provide breakfast there i mean it's an important nutritional program for for low-income families and it turns out it seems to turn out at least that like what you serve has a meaningful impact on how the kids do in school which is like the that's like the primary thing school age kids do is like go to school. Um, so it's it, it's important, I think, to like feed them well and to uh, take care of, of children, even if these uh, questions about, you know, our overall calorie intake and stuff are, are beyond the, the scope of like what the what the lunch lady can can control. Um, and so, you know, I think that's worth that's worth paying attention to. It's, it's easy to get just sort of like cynical about everything and like nothing will work. But this seems to work. Huzzah! <laughs> Boom. All right. Um, all right. Uh, so thanks uh, for, for everyone for, for listening. Thanks to our, our producer, uh, Peter Leonard. We're going to uh, come back and talk about the, the text of, of the healthcare bill. At least some of us will uh, on Friday. Um, so excited. We have it available. It's it's going to be huge. Uh, we're really probably only going to have the one episode to talk about uh, what this bill <laughs> says since they're moving so fast. So Wednesday we can talk about the CBO score and yeah, then well, Friday you know, the vote. It's going to be fast. So it's it's going to be great. It's going to be a, a, a weeds extravaganza. Um, check out the Facebook group if you haven't. We can uh, continue the discussion there and we will uh, see you in a couple days. Yeah.